The racial divide is not only a problem in our nation, but it's also a problem in our church. But what if I told you that there are five things that all of us could do to help heal the racial divide? Number one, be aware. Be aware of who is sitting at the table and who's not present at the table. Number two, get proximate to whoever it is that is not sitting at the table. Number three, Fast from speaking and listen. Fasting is one of the very first commandments that God gave to Adam and Eve in the garden. Fast from eating of that tree and listen well to our brothers and sisters who are not sitting at the table with us. Number four, pray. Take our conversation, take their experiences and their stories that they share with us to Jesus in prayer. And number five, collaborate. Take our talents, and our gifts and our resources and collaborate with them using their talents and their gifts and their resources to work together to reform unjust practices, those unwritten rules and policies, those written rules that continue to perpetuate the unnecessary racial divide. I want to invite you to participate in a thought experiment with me. It was inspired by Bishop Edward Braxton in his pastoral letter on the racial divide. Imagine for a moment that in your diocese there is this huge new Catholic school. The Catholic school is called St. Charles Luanga and the Ugandan Martyrs. The school is about 87% black and 13% white. In the front of the school there's a huge statue of St. Charles Luanga and the other African saints. It's a very Catholic school and so every day the students, they have chapel and there's a beautiful oratory on the campus. And in the, in the sanctuary of the oratory, there is a beautiful mural of God the Father. And he's depicted as an old black man with a white afro. And Jesus Christ is on the cross. It's a beautiful crucifix. It's a black Jesus on the cross. And Mary, the virgin mother of God, is depicted as a black woman. And St. Joseph is a black man. And St. Peter and St. Paul and St. John are all depicted as black. The angels who don't even have bodies are also depicted as black, Raphael and Gabriel and St. Michael. And the only white image in the entire oratory, in the entire church, is of Satan, who is being stepped on by the black St. Michael. Satan is depicted as a white man with blonde hair and blue eyes. Imagine how that artwork would make those few white students feel if they had to see that kind of artwork every single day when they went to mass or adoration or the rosary or the stations of the cross. When they would leave the chapel, there's beautiful artwork and statues in the hallways depicting other black saints, St. Josephine Bakita and St. Moses the Black and St. Martin de Porres and St. Benedict the Moor. And some of the white students begin to talk to their, their black classmates and say, why, why don't they also depict the white saints? I mean, there's St. John Paul II, there's St. Therese of Lisieux, there's St. Mother Teresa, there's so many other saints in the body of Christ. Why does the church depict even the angels as black when we know angels don't even have, have bodies? Why is Satan depicted as, as a white man with blonde hair and blue eyes? Why are all the faculty and administration at our Catholic school only black men and women? Why aren't there any white professors on our campus and the black students look at their their white classmates and they tell them 
that's just the way it is. You know, we, don't, we don't see color. We're, we're colorblind. You shouldn't see color either. Right? Color's not important. You should see yourself represented in the, the black angels and in the black saints and the black Jesus and Mary and Joseph. You should see yourself represented in the content the professors who are black are presenting to our student body. We don't see color at this school, and you shouldn't either. Seeing color is the only reason why I'm a priest today. One of my friends, Brandy, she is white. She went to a conference in 2003 and she had a profound encounter with Jesus Christ. She fell in love with Jesus. And when she came back from that conference, she began to go to youth group every Monday and retreats and workshops and missions and other conferences throughout the year. And every time she went to a conference or to a retreat or to a workshop or to youth group, she would only see white people, white priests, white sisters, white youth ministers, and white students. In our confirmation class, there were 20 kids, 16 white and four black. And Brandy would always come and sit with the four black kids. She would sit with us, and every week she would always invite us, hey y'all, do you wanna come with me to youth group? Do you wanna come with me to this conference I'm going to? Do you wanna come with me to this, this workshop or this mission or this retreat? And every week we would always say, no, we're not interested. But after a year of Brandy inviting us, I finally said yes, yes to going to a conference with her. And I went to a conference and on June 26, 2004 at eight o'clock PM Saturday night, I fell in love with Jesus Christ during Eucharistic adoration. Fell in love with the Lord. He, he satiated this ache that I had in my heart. He quenched this thirst. He, he fulfilled all my desires right there in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament. I was in love. And ever since I fell in love with Jesus, all I have wanted to do is fulfill his desires. I just want to console his heart. I want to quench his thirst. So what does Jesus desire? Jesus reveals his desires to us in the Gospel of John chapter 17. He says in his prayer to the Father, Father, I desire that they be one as we are one. Jesus Christ desires unity. That's what he wants. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ longs for. That's what he thirsts for. He wants unity. And so how then do we fulfill his desires? Simple, by being obedient to his mandate that he gave to us in the Gospels. Go out and make disciples of all nations. The word nations is translated from the Greek ethnos, which means literally ethnicities. Jesus Christ told the apostles, go out and make disciples of all ethnicities. And in Acts chapter two, after they sat and watched and prayed for nine days, they received the Holy Spirit. And when they received the Holy Spirit, the very first thing that they did was they went out and they literally made disciples of all ethnicities people from Africa and Europe and Asia are all represented in Acts chapter 2. And what was the fruit of their discipleship of all nations? John, the beloved disciple who rested his head on the breast of Jesus at the Last Supper, John, the beloved disciple, had a vision of heaven in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 7 verse 9, he saw heaven wide open and he says, Behold, I see people of every race nation, tribe, and tongue together in unity and communion with each other before the Lamb of God. That's what heaven looks like. 
all peoples together. Does our earth look like heaven? Does our, does our nation look like heaven? Does our church look like heaven? Let's bring it down a little bit further home. Does my small group Bible study look like heaven? If not, then I want to propose one of the reasons why that is the case is because many of us here on earth in our nation and our church who participate in Bible studies, many of us, we don't really know Jesus. That's, that's the concern. Many of us don't know Jesus. Young people, old people, single people, married people, priests, religious sisters, monks, friars, bishops, many of us don't know the person Jesus. And so, of course, if we don't know Jesus, our communities are not going to look like the community of Jesus in heaven. This isn't something that's a concern just for me. St. Mother Teresa of Calcutta, she was concerned about this for her sisters and her community, the missionaries of charity, these nuns who do some of the most difficult work in the world. One day she was speaking with them and she said to them, I'm worried that some of you still, after all these years, don't know Jesus. You haven't seen with your own eyes the way that Jesus looks at you. You haven't heard with your own ears the words that Jesus wants to speak to you. I'm worried some of you don't know Jesus. How do we get to know Jesus? Through prayer. Through spending intentional, consistent time with him in prayer. Sharing with him our thoughts and our feelings and our desires, but also listening to him share his thoughts and his feelings and his desires with us. How do we listen to God? Through the sacred scriptures, through the word inscribed, the, the Holy Bible. That is the voice of God. St. Jerome tells us ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ. If I don't know the voice of God in scripture, I cannot say I really know Christ. I must spend time with him in scripture. How? How do we spend time with God in scripture? The church gives us this ancient form of prayer called Lexio Divina. There are traditionally four steps to Lexio. We read the word of God. What does it say? In and of itself, just what does it say? Then we meditate on it. What is it saying to me? After we meditate on what the word of God is saying to me, we, we pray, which is simply having a conversation with God. After we pray with what it says to me, we then sit with God and we look at the Lord as the Lord looks at us. As he loves us, we love him in the presence of God. I like to add a fifth step of Lexio called the, the resolution. After I spend time reading the word and meditating on the word and praying with the word and contemplating the word, I want to come up with a concrete action based on that time that I can follow up with my Lord in prayer. See, that the more time that we, we spend with God, the more we're going to become like God. We're going to think like God, speak like God, act like God. And if I spend time with God in prayer using this model, Lexio Divina, then the way that I pray will also impact the way that I live outside of prayer. When I encounter my brothers and sisters who are different from me, I will also pay attention to what is it that they said. And what does that say to me? And then I will take what they said and what it says to me and I will bring it to Jesus in prayer and have a follow-up conversation with God. And then after I spend time with God in prayer and sit with the Lord in contemplation, I will come up with a resolution and have more questions to bring to that brother or sister who is different from me so we can continue to accompany each other in our walk toward eternity. This is what Archbishop Alfred Hughes did 
in the Archdiocese of New Orleans, he became aware that a number of the black Catholics in his community were leaving the church. And instead of saying, I know why they're leaving, I know why they're walking away from the church, he took a posture of humility and he acknowledged, like, I'm aware they're leaving and I don't know why. So he got proximate to them and he invited a number of black Catholics in his archdiocese to sit at the table with him. And instead of speaking, he fasted from communicating and just listened to them share their stories. What's going on? Tell me what I don't know that I need to know. And what he heard broke his heart. He heard many stories, but one of the stories he heard over and over again was from black Catholics who were very active in ministry and the church in his archdiocese who were hurting because there was a country club in his archdiocese that continued to have a practice that said black people could not be members. And their parish churches, their organizations, their schools continued to host events at this country club, even after they talked to their pastors and their leaders in their church and said, we wish that you would not go there and host events there because we can't go. We can't participate. And after they cried out to their leaders in their churches, they went unheard. And they were tired of being neglected. And that's why they were walking away. Archbishop Hughes had no idea. So after he listened to them and believed them, he took their concerns to prayer. And the fruit of his prayer was that he composed with them a pastoral letter against racism in his archdiocese that was then distributed to every parish in his archdiocese that said no Catholic church, no Catholic school, no Catholic hospital, no Catholic organization, no Catholic institution in the archdiocese of New Orleans can has, have any event could host any function at any place that does not allow diverse membership. When this letter went out into his community, it transformed that country club because they began to lose money because people stopped hosting events there and then they changed their practice. This wasn't done in the 60s or 70s or 80s or 90s. This was done in the 2000s, the 21st century. But transformation happened. They began to invite black people to become members of their institution, of their club. This brought about some healing with the reformation of this unjust practice. If we also want to be used by God to begin the healing process in our communities, then I want to encourage us to be aware who is sitting at the table with me and who's not here. Get proximate to whoever is not sitting at the table with me Fast from speaking and listen. Listen to their stories, their life experiences. Take their stories and their life experiences to prayer before Jesus Christ in the sacred scriptures and in the blessed sacrament. And then find practical ways to accompany our brothers and our sisters, to collaborate using our gifts, our talents, and our resources, and their gifts, and their talents, and their resources, so that together, we can transform unjust practices, those unwritten rules, and policies, those written rules, and cultivate unity in the body of Christ. Begin to heal the racial divide so that our nation, so that our church, so that our communities can begin to look a little bit more like heaven. Thank you.